welcome everybody to this year's Kowakowski lecture, which is this year part of a larger conference by the Knowledge Bridges Poland Britain Europe project at the European Studies Centre on European and Nationalism post-1989 Poland in Comparative Perspective. Uh, and we would like to thank the Programme on Modern Poland of the Nobel Foundation, the Polish Cultural Institute and the European Studies Centre for their generous support. Um, we've already started with one session for those of you who were there. Um, the title of the subtitle of the lecture uh, is National Exception or Regional Norm, which of course deliberately begs the question, which region are we talking about? Is it Central Europe? Is it East Central Europe? Is it Eastern Europe? Is it Europe? Is it the West? Is it the world? Uh, and no one is better uh, equipped to address that question than our speaker today, Professor Jacques Rupnik. Jacques Rupnik is quite simply the doyen of specialists on Central and Eastern Europe in France. He's been working on the region, I think it'd be fair to say, for 50 years, Jacques, since he participated in Les Événements of 1968 in Prague and Paris, um, the anniversary of which we're celebrating uh, this year. Um, he wrote uh, a very fine book on the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, now perhaps a slightly minority interest, but then of some importance. Um, he did a memorable television series called The Other Europe, which produced a book of that title. He spent a lot of the 1990s working on two major international commissions on former Yugoslavia, Bosnia, and then Kosovo. Um, he has written extensively about issues around populism, uh, post-communism, nationalism. Um, his last book is 1989 as a political world event, Democracy, Europe and the New International System, with an introduction by Václav Havel, who indeed Jack uh, knew very well and advised. Um, so no one, as I say, could be better equipped to address this subject. Please join me in welcoming Jack Rupp. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks very much, Tim. Uh, great, uh, very kind introduction. Uh, being called a doyen, which simply means uh, age, <laughs> and uh, and being reminded uh, of uh, a book which was a PhD thesis uh, concerning the history of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. Uh, well, my book of laughter and forgetting, if you want. <laughs> that is. Uh, uh, so, yeah, it, it's good to be reminded the 68ers are still around, and uh, it is actually interesting to see, but I will not inflict that on you at this stage, the uh, debates about 68 that are going on, in the, unless you're interested in the debate in, in the, uh, after, the, after the talk. Uh, 68 is also one reason why Leszek Kolakowski came to this country and to this university. This is where I had the privilege of meeting him uh, in the mid-70s. Uh, uh, François Feite, he, he was a real doyen of the East European uh, studies uh, 
in France, so, but he's no longer around. And he took me uh, as a young student to see Lesha Kolakowski, and we spent a whole afternoon in the garden here in Oxford discussing. The, the two men were discussing, of course, Eastern Europe, uh, French Communist Party, everything else, and eventually uh, 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 um, addressed the fundamental question whether the devil uh, could be considered a proof of the existence of God. Yeah. And uh, so I, I remember their brilliant conversation on that subject, and uh, I'm sure it was related to our previous conversations about communism in Eastern Europe, but, um, and, and of course, many other occasions to remember Leszek Kolakowski. One of them, another one here, was, I think, about 15 years ago, uh, a conference about Central Europe, where Leszek was unanimously elected the king of Central Europe. So uh, uh, I salute, I salute the king, and uh, of course, uh, uh, not sure the king would recognize his kingdom today, uh, because uh, it has undergone evolutions that you started discussing uh, this afternoon. Uh, uh, Leszek Kolakowski uh, uh, wrote an essay that you uh, may remember. Uh, incidentally, his essays, I mean, he's known for his magnum opus on Marxism, a number of things, but his essays, which I recently reread, a number of them. And there's one uh, called How to Be a Conservative Liberal Socialist, uh, um, uh, which was a way of saying, forget all labels, think on your feet, anew, afresh. This is the kind of good advice we would need for, uh, for today. Uh, the opening sentence of that, uh, of that uh, essay is, move forward to the back. And uh, he, sa he says, he continues, this is an injunction that I heard once on a tramway in Warsaw. I propose to make it the rallying call for a powerful international that will never see the light of day. So, uh, yeah, move forward to the back. That could have been the title of this lecture, actually. <laughs> uh, because, obviously, we are trying to understand uh, the regression of democracy in Poland, but in East Central Europe more generally. And uh, uh, this, less than 30 years after the fall of the old regime, 15 years after accession to the EU. Oskar Yassi in the 1920s, reflecting about what happened to Hungary, used the term Rückschlag, regression, borrowing from psychoanalysis, this term, the idea that in times of crisis, old structures come to the fore. And uh, uh, so the... Uh, Rückschlag is really what uh, I'll be trying to address now. Um, I will uh, focus on the Hungary and Poland, but of course make comparisons with others as well. It's difficult to avoid the Polish-Hungarian tandem because they've actually made it so. They've presented themselves together. Together they were in Krynica in the fall of 2016, and uh, uh, not only celebrating Brexit, but calling for a counter-revolution 
uh, in uh, Europe. And uh, uh, that was, for me, a sort of very symbolic moment. You know, it used to be that uh, dissidents would meet uh, in the mountains on the Czech-Polish border uh, to discuss uh, strategies how to uh, democratize uh, their uh, societies. Now, two former dissidents, because Orban and Kaczynski are former dissidents, two former dissidents meet in the Tatras to discuss or to propose, <laughs> to call for a counter-revolution in uh, Europe. Uh, so that, that is one reason to put them together. The second is uh, Poland has been, uh, today put, singled out in the procedure, as you know, the EU uh, 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 procedure uh, uh, invoking Article 7 that could suspend the voting rights of a country. This is unprecedented and um, uh, of course it will not happen as we know because uh, uh, you need unanimity uh, but of course it has brought back so to speak the Polish question uh, 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 again uh, in uh, uh, to, to the fore. So uh, uh, the Polish question returning in the context of an east-west divide in Europe uh, that has uh, crystallized over the migration crisis and uh, uh, over uh, the what is now called for short illiberal, uh, illiberal democracy. So uh, yes, uh, Leszek Kolakowski's kingdom is changing. The other Europe, which was uh, 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 my own take on this, uh, is becoming other again, but in very rather different ways uh, from uh, what uh, writers that were uh, engaged in that debate at the time, uh, be the Milan Kundera, uh, Czeslav Miroš, Konrad, uh, and many others uh, had uh, in uh, mind. Uh, so there is the Polish dimension, there is the Central European dimension, and there is, and I insist on that, the trans-European dimension. Uh, there is a danger, especially in, in uh, West European journalism, of simply uh, describing uh, the situation in uh, Central Europe, the Visegrad group, illiberal democracy, Chuck, and you already know where they are. I think that, it, as in every stereotype, there is, a, of course, an element of truth, and I will, of course, uh, uh, develop that, but, but I think that that is missing a point, that this is a problem that is trans-European, we can observe it everywhere, where does actually Western Europe start is not clear. Austria clearly is part of the picture. <laughs> uh, Austro-Hungary is back uh, in business, in illiberal clothes, so to speak. So uh, yes, uh, uh, but it's a trans-European, and I, I don't have to go country by country to single out, to point out. Indeed, uh, uh, when you see the way um, Orban and Kaczynski welcomed Brexit, and in fact, indeed, the whole Visegrad group, saying this is the main lesson from Brexit, bring repatriate powers to the national governments. This is the main lesson uh, that we uh, uh, derive from that. So Brexit first, and the election of Donald Trump then, 
providing the context which seen from Central Europe, you have what was considered the two main bastions of liberal de Western liberal democracy uh, going <laughs> a different way. Uh, uh, and you just see the response, uh, as Orban put it in his Daily Telegraph interview immediately after the election of Donald Trump. With Brexit, Brexit opened the door. With the election of Donald Trump, we have crossed the threshold. The liberal non-democracy is over. What a day, what a day, what a day. He was simply over the top, over the moon. He could not restrain himself. This was uh, for him, he said in that interview that he suddenly, thanks to what Brexit and Trump, he felt liberated from these European constraints. Liberated is not quite the word. Vindicated is the better word. He felt vindicated. In the previous session, somebody raised the question of legitimation. Well, there you have it. Legitimation, uh, uh, this is what they saw in those events. So, um, uh, yes, uh, you were pointing fingers at us, seeing us we are a backward, unruly, uh, uh, unworthy of Europe, periphery of the continent, etc., etc. No, we were the vanguard of the nationalist populist tide that is reshaping the politics uh, in Europe, in internationally actually, because there's Trump, but you could add in other, other continents, you could add, you know, Modi, etc. You, I mean, the, the list is long that could, you know, there's a kind of uh, uh, nationalist international now <laughs> uh, that, uh, that has uh, uh, come into being in recent years. So uh, this um, reminds me a bit of a, of a short story by uh, uh, Marcel Aimé about uh, 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 a cyclist in the Tour de France who is lagging behind the peloton, you know, and he's lagging so much that the following year he finds himself ahead of the race. So uh, uh, that, is, that is a little bit how the uh, uh, Central European nationalist populist, etc., I think uh, uh, um, uh, could, can be seen. And this is how they seem themselves. They're very pleased with themselves. I've just been to Hungary, I was saying to Tim, uh, a, a week before the election. I spent a week talking to some of the people in the surroundings of uh, Orban. They are not apologetic. They are very assertive, very determined, very self-confident. They have the feeling that the tide is going their way, etc., etc. So this is something to bear in mind when we're discussing the situation, which doesn't mean you have to uh, 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 sort of uh, um, not see what is actually happening, but simply uh, be aware that the retarded cyclist uh, uh, is now in the peloton. The peloton actually is moving, or they feel the peloton is moving in that direction. Um, Time is limited, and I'm already uh, behind, so to speak. Um, what I suggest to do is briefly look at some of the main features of populist nationalism in Central Europe. You could call it varieties of populism, etc. 
look at some of the uh, explanatory hypotheses we can formulate and then look at the European dimension, what does it, what are the uh, implications, what are the uh, 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 consequences uh, for uh, Europe. Um, it is good to remember when we look at Central Europe today that um, uh, the Visegrad group, when it was created, and I think the founding moment was, I think, Václav Havel's speech in the Polish Sejm in January 1990, where he basically outlined the situation. We are coming out of dictatorship. We have the common, we have cooperated among dissidents, Solidarność, Charta 77, etc., in making the democratic transformation possible. And we have a common goal, which is European integration. He also added a number of other reasons. We have to cooperate to fill the geopolitical void, not just left by uh, the communist system that was disintegrating the Soviet bloc, but left by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, <laughs> which was an interesting point. That he was thinking also in geopolitical terms, and I will, uh, and I will uh, uh, come back to that. Well, we have now complete regression on all three counts. They are in democratic regression. It's not overcoming nationalist uh, um, uh, uh, tendencies of the pre-war period, which was Havel's uh, concern as well. They are back on that, uh, on that track. And uh, they have now adopted a very uh, critical or often hostile posture towards, uh, towards European uh, integration. So we have the Visegrad group in complete uh, reversal mode. So briefly, the varieties of open. I don't think I have to dwell too much on the Polish-Hungarian variety. Uh, Budapest in Warsaw, as Kaczynski uh, called it, because you are familiar, this audience is familiar, uh, is familiar with it. Uh, challenge to the rule of law, the constitutional courts. In both cases, of course, this is a common strategy. In fact, Kaczynski copying in accelerated form uh, some of the things that Orban had done, the attacks on independent media. Uh, um, uh, uh, in Poland, it, this is true for the public media, but you still have independent private media. In Hungary, this is no longer so. This is no longer so. I did not think I would think I would see an old dissident friend in Budapest, as I saw him a couple of weeks ago, uh, mourning the disappearance of Nepsabajak as the ultimate upholder of independent journalism in Hungary. <laughs> I mean, that sort of sums it up uh, 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 how far we have uh, gone. And they have a common features in the uh, in the discourse. Uh, the revolution betrayed, that is a, a, a familiar one, of course. Uh, 1989 was not a real revolution, etc., etc. You know that, that version. Uh, the uh, related uh, element is the network 
that has been established because the revolution didn't happen. You have a network that has been established that is related to the old regime, to the old secret police, etc. And this is they've captured sort of the state, the economy, etc., etc. Uklad, of course, uh, in the Polish uh, in the Polish uh, version. But the Hungarian one is a very very. I I I spoke to the rector of the Corvinus University who went on and on about that. He says what we need is a change of guard. I said, but. What do you mean? Yeah, they are the communists, you know, they are. But I said, but, you know, this is 30 years after the death of communism. You're beating a dead horse. Oh, no, no, this is, this, this is the priority, you know. So uh, uh, it doesn't mean, uh, reality is not important. It's, it's the uh, uh, rhetorical element, that element. And I think in both cases, Orban, he moved to the right to capture the nationalist uh, conservative electorate uh, very deliberately and in a way you can say uh, uh, you remember the peace was in coalition with Samobrona and the League of Polish Families and where are they? They've captured that, well, they covered the ground. I think that there are some number of similarities you can discuss. I don't need to dwell on that. Uh, you have uh, uh, you know that uh, uh, very well. Perhaps what, what you may be less familiar with is the Czech and Slovak version, because um, Czechs and Slovaks, they keep a low profile or lower profile. But if you look at close range, the picture is not very pretty. And basically, you get a milder version, as often with the Czechs. You get a milder version of the same trend uh, 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 in, uh, in Central Europe. There is, of course, a discourse about Czech exceptionalism. I mean, this audience would accept me to launch on a big tirade about Polish exceptionalism. I will not do that because I saw that uh, Norman Davis was in the audience uh, there, perhaps not here. But you know you can't you can't beat that you know this is the heart Poland the heart of Europe okay you cannot you cannot beat that I mean here is the expert on the subject and I will not dare in front of him go over that old chestnut although uh, uh, maybe I will say a couple of things about in ways in which Poland is different exceptional perhaps vis-à-vis uh, -vis the other uh, uh, Central Europeans now. Uh, Varieties of populism, the Hungarian Polish hardline version, the softer Czechoslovak version. Uh, the Slovak uh, version you have um, essentially an attack on the rule of law, uh, which has not been as obvious as elsewhere. But it had come to the fore in the context of the current corruption scandal, as you know, the assassination of, these, uh, uh, of the journalist and, and his, and his fiancée. And uh, suddenly, the idea of the inefficiency of the police, the judiciary, etc., etc., came, came uh, to the fore. Uh, that's one aspect of it. The second, uh, and you see how closely political power is connected both to the police and to the judiciary. And the second, I think more, more interesting in a way aspect, or less surprising, is uh, uh, in the discussion about populism. Because after all, Fizzo, uh, uh, what, is, what is Fizzo's party? Fizzo's party is called Smier. 
when he created it, more than 10 years ago, uh, smear means direction, but he didn't say which direction. <laughs> so that for me is a definition of a poem. It's, it's me, the direction is, is me, <laughs> follow me. <laughs> so uh, that, is, that is the first. The second thing is, is that uh, he went very deliberately for the nationalist electorate that was there since Mechar. So he provided a sort of soft landing for the post-Mechar, post-90s. You remember Mechar, at least some of you must remember, you know, the, the authoritarian regime of Vladimir Mechar. So he basically provided, a, as I say, a soft landing for the Mechar electorate and uh, not so soft when the election campaign comes and that, as it did in 2016, and the whole fall, the six months prior to the election, was about the migrant campaign. Taking European Commission to the court. I think he was the first East European to take the commission to the court uh, uh, over the quotas, over the migrant quotas. He eventually lost, but that doesn't matter. It's just uh, the, the, the symbolic, the political charge there. And his statements, you know, they, they, you, you could, I mean, Orban is often quoted, uh, uh, Kaczynski, of course, on, on, on his uh, uh, fear of epidemics that migrants can bring, etc., etc. Well, you, sh you should read Mechar. I will never allow a single Muslim to come into this country. Anyway, they would not be happy here because we have no mosques. If you want mosques, you know, this way. Geraderhaus, Germany, France. Britain, if you can make it from Calais, good luck. Uh, that is that is that is Fizzo. and uh, uh, he created a coalition with nationalists. So in Slovakia, you have a continuum of nationalism. Fizzo is a mild version. How mild? I just gave you an example. Uh, then you have the Slovak National Party, which used to be the equivalent of the Front National, although it has become it has mellowed somehow. Uh, uh, that happens to uh, to extreme right wing parties. It, it's now happening to Jobbik, incidentally. Uh, far right nationalists, extreme xenophobes, anti semites everything. And now, because they see that Orban has occupied the whole nationalist field, including the far right, they have, they are squeezed, and they say they're trying to reinvent themselves as a sort of center center-right party. So this is also a very new experiment. I don't know how successful it will be, probably not, uh, but uh, you have in Slovakia, therefore, the continuum. Fico, SNS, Slovak National Party, and now you have Kotleba, this openly fascist party that entered parliament in, in the last election. So, yes, uh, nationalism, xenophobic, and the corruption issue, the rule of law, uh, is a key uh, element. Incidentally, that provoked popular demonstrations, as you have seen. Government was brought down. Robert Fizzo resigned. And to fix the problem, and you know the problem what it was, the role of Italian mafia in Slovakia, in regional governments in Slovakia, in capturing European funds. That's what it's about prepared to kill people uh, uh, over that. Uh, so to fix the problem of the Italian mafia in Slovakia, Robert Fizzo appointed his successor called Pellegrini. So uh, we uh, uh, have sort of the 
picture in good hands, the situation is in good hands, obviously with Pellegrini. Uh, uh, the, Czech, the Czech always uh, uh, have, I mean, the Czech version of populism comes in three, the three faces of Czech populism, I could say. The three faces of Czech populism, it could be a title for, a, for an article if <coughs> The title is already taken for fascism, so populism has not been, the three phases of populism has not been done. Uh, first phase uh, is, is that of Andrei Babiš, a Slovak who became prime minister in the Czech uh, Republic. He's an entrepreneur. So this is a different kind, this is different kind of populism. This is what I would call entrepreneurial populism. Entrepreneurial populism, that is you have a successful businessman who starts buying media, he bought newspapers, etc., and then eventually decides to step into politics. He steps into politics and creates a party called Anno. Anno means yes, but he doesn't say yes to what? Because again, it is yes to him, just like Fico is yeah. So this is it, you know, if, if you're looking for what is characteristic, a strong leader uh, uh, with authoritarian rhetoric, the rhetoric of of uh, 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 of Babish is is uh, I mean he's very tough on migration as well. But his main thing is the parliament is a talk shop. They are useless. They do nothing. I am a doer. We are doers. We do things. Okay, this is one version. Uh, uh, the state should be run like a company. That's a quote. A state should be run like a company. So there's no distinction between private and public <laughs> uh, 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 common good or anything like that. No. So you have there the, uh, on Brexit, I heard him at a conference where I was uh, 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 in Prague, where he said, if I were British, I would vote for Brexit. For Brexit. But I'm not, and, you know, and he's doing very well with uh, European funds, his firm, Agrofed making billions with that. And actually, it is with over-European funds that he got into trouble now, okay? Uh, misuse of a tiny fraction, one of his subsidiary companies, you know, two million euros, this is peanuts for him. This is absolutely peanuts. But anyway, he's in trouble because of that. Uh, so this is one phase, entrepreneurial populism. The second phase of Czech populism, uh, uh, Miloš Zeman. Uh, Again, I don't have time to go over everything. I would simply say in the second round of the election, you had two candidates. Miloš Zeman, uh, this was in January this year. Miloš Zeman and Drahoš, former chairman of the academy, professor of chemistry, I think. And, uh, uh, you know, very nice man. Vaguely pro-European, vaguely liberal, everything vaguely, didn't have much to say, but was a decent man. Uh, uh, the, uh, the other one had lo lots to say, mainly in a brutal and insulting way, and guess who won? And uh, uh, in the runoff between the first and the second round, the posters in Prague were Stop Migrants, Stop Drahoš. <laughs> There are no migrants in the Czech Republic, but never mind. But what does Drahoš answer to that? I agree only with the first proposition. <laughs> All right, that's, that's how courageous 
the liberals are in Prague. Uh, and the third phase of uh, Czech nationalist populism is Tomio Okamura. Now you may, you may be surprised, but the most radically xenophobic language, kick the migrants, stop them, send them, etc., uh, comes from a guy called Tomio Okamura, a Japanese uh, who is the leader of the extreme right-wing uh, Czech nationalist party. So uh, uh, if Pellegrini is going to fix the mafia, why couldn't Okamura fix the migrants in the Czech Republic? Uh, that is, uh, and of course, this is the uh, picture. I'm, I'm dwelling on the Czechs and Slovaks simply because they are less attention paid to it. It helps to correct the extreme focus on the Polish-Hungarian uh, Polish case. If I had time, I would make further comparison with Slovenes closer to the Czech version. Slovenes can succeed even to make populism boring. You know, they have a party called <laughs> Party of the uh, Party of the Moderate Center, which won the election, which was created six months before the election, and it won. You know, it sort of re reminded me of you know in, in those who know the good soldier Schweik, uh, uh, you, you know the, its author Jaroslav Hasek tried to create the party, uh, Party of Moderate Progress within the limits of the law. Okay, uh, uh, that's 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 the Slovene take on it. The more interesting for this audience. Uh, a, a Polono-centric audience is Croatia, because the nearest comparison for Poland is Croatia. Nationalist, conservative, super-Catholic. And they created together now the Three Seas uh, project. You know about that. This is a great thing. And uh, so now we have, from the Baltic to the Adriatic, as Churchill said, not the Iron Curtain, but the populist nationalist uh, uh, alliance has been, uh, has been formed. Uh, briefly, what they have uh, uh, in common, as I said, uh, rule of law and independent media. Secondly, the decay of the party system. I do not have that, but this is a crucial thing. You know, in the 1990s, the emergence of the party system in all the countries, in the Czech Republic, I used to say, well, you know, you, you may not like these parties, but you have these two pillars, ODS created by Václav Klaus, you have the Social Democrats, they will create coalitions with the Christians or with whatever Greens or whatever small, small parties will be available. That is gone. That is gone. And in the space in the middle came, uh, came uh, uh, Babish. And... Uh, uh, Ten years ago, I wrote a, I published a book in Prague called the Prematurely Tired Democracy. And in those days, I was rather talking about the disillusionment with democracy at the time. And uh, disillusionment, I thought, uh, was inherent to democracy, first of all. <laughs> and secondly, uh, it could mean that people are becoming more critical and more demanding with a visa critic, the democratic system. It was not simply legitimated by the negation of the communist system. So there was a new phase, and I was sort of trying to see a positive element in the disillusionment of the, now, now we've moved to something else. This is no longer disillusionment with democracy, which is huge if you look at the surveys 
I mean, the trust in government, 11% is the average in the Visegrad, so this is not high. Uh, but um, uh, uh, there you have the authoritarian drift and the call for strong hand government. You know which countries it is strongest in the whole of Eastern Europe? Czech Republic and Romania, and then Slovakia, etc. Not Poland. I mean, Poland is there, but. And since I'm on the Czechs and the, uh, uh, and the Slovaks, and I will uh, uh, return to Poland as soon as I can, but I, I wanted at least, if I had the time, uh, I will simply, while I'm using the uh, figures that I had with me, when you look at the surveys, you see a similar trend. It's a trans-European trend, and then you have a much stronger Central European dimension. So, you know, dissatisfaction with governments. With, okay, I didn't bring the PowerPoint. I could have inflicted on you, you know, plenty of data. There's a huge survey published by Fundapol, which I recommend, which is, which is really trans-European. All European countries are in there. And it goes subject by subject, you know. Trust in government, trust in judiciary, media, etc., etc. For me, the interesting thing is when you come to issues such, such as the one I've just mentioned, migration, uh, tolerance towards others, you have a uh, rather um, strange uh, picture because not only is Central Europe the, the negative posture is stronger, uh, but uh, uh, you have a surprising element. When you say to people, um, immigration has negative consequences for our country, two-thirds of all say yes, 83% of Hungarians, but 88% of Slovaks, 91% of Czechs, they have no migrants there. I mean, so this is interesting. Uh, uh, Islam is perceived as a menace by half of the, this is half in the EU, the EU average is half. You know, do you think Islam is, is, is a menace? Half of the EU says yes, which is already quite high. Um, it's, it's over two thirds in Poland and Hungary, and then 78% for uh, uh, Slovaks, 85% for Czechs, etc. I could go on like that, but what I'm trying to say is that yes, they produce a milder version politically now, but the underpinning in society is there, and sometimes even on some aspects, even stronger than you would uh, uh, assume. And uh, so, um, the question for political science, after all, there is, this is a room, or at least half of the room is political science uh, oriented. How to define these regimes? I think this, is, uh, um, this would be an important question for a discussion. Uh, uh, is it uh, competitive authoritarianism, as Levitsky and Wei call it? In other words, you still have competition, you still have elections, but the level playing field is no longer there. You, you no longer have a f fair competition. You basically could hardly talk. I mean, increasingly difficult to talk about free and fair elections. Hybrid regimes, illiberal democracy is the term that Orban himself has uh, uh, used. Uh, Jan Werner Müller uh, uh, is very critical of the use of that word because he thinks that uh, 
only the only true democracy is liberal democracy and therefore one shouldn't use I think this is uh, and I see what he means and, and I sort of um, basically agree with him on the on what his intentions are but I think it's dodging the issue I think it's dodging the issue because uh, this is a debate within democracy and it's a very old debate it's not something uh, invented a uh, 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 few years ago by Orban or Kaczynski or something like that. This is something much older. Uh, you can go back to, uh, to Benjamin Constant and his distinction of uh, freedom of the moderns and the ancients, you know, the freedom of enjoyment, liberal freedoms of enjoyment of liberties. State is there simply to guarantee that freedom. or freedom to participate, uh, the positive freedom, as Isa Berlin would have it. So this is an old debate. It's a debate within democracy. And uh, uh, it makes the debate all the more difficult, because both Orban and Kaczynski and others, because, of course, and, and, and Babichel have a similar inclinations, is to say, well, we have the popular vote, we have the popular sovereignty behind us, and we should not accept the constraints of constitutions, institutions, neutral, non-elected bodies, non-elected bodies such as, uh, I don't know, the central bank, the etc., uh, etc. Et There's a whole group of non-elected bodies, in, and European Union fits in that category, Brussels, Brussels bureaucrats, etc. These non-elected commissioners, they are telling the sovereign people what to do. So this is, uh, um, uh, yeah, I think when, when Kaczynski talks about legal impossibilism, this is what is at stake. We, the will of the people, the democratic will of the people, we have the majority in power, is constrained by various legal constraints and we should resist. Of course you answer, but the European Union is based on that, on the rule of law, on the acceptance of those constraints. <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, uh, what it is about and this is why we have the discussion, this is why we have the, well, more than discussion, now political confrontation. But still, I still believe it's a debate within democracy and, and, and will have to be fought on uh, that uh, ground. Uh, final element, uh, the illiberal populist onslaught targets um, society and uh, particularly civil society. The Hungarian case is, I think, very interesting because there they went further than elsewhere in trying to constrain, restrict, control the activities of independent civil society organizations. They have more or less followed the Putin uh, legislation about foreign agents. You have to disclose the foreign funds you get and you are labeled something. It's not foreign agent like in Russia, but something similar. And you have, I think I would call it the salami tactics in the reverse. You remember Rakoshi's salami tactics, how to deal with your opposition. Well, I think you have something similar going on there. First, you tackle political opposition. They are weak, they are disfragmented, they're gone. Then you uh, target NGOs, civil society. You have various organizations that are financed from abroad, Soros, etc., etc. This is your second line of thought. And now they're moving even into the third 
phase, which is the sphere of culture. Uh, and that includes university, and the Central European University is, of course, a perfect target, but within a broader context, uh, schooling in general, theatres, uh, cultural life in general. Why? Because they consider that the cultural sphere, just like under communism, or just like, much like under communism, becomes the ultimate sphere where the opposition retreats. They've been defeated politically. Their NGOs are now being shrunk. Well, culture is where they tend to retreat. This is where you move on. And this is why I will come to it. Culture war matters so much. How to account for all for this illiberal drift? As I said, I will spare you the Polish exceptionalism uh, uh, thesis. Um, it has merits. I remember the discussions we had about Solidarność. You know, was it an exception, an European exception, uh, the only social movement of that size uh, where the working class was part of it? Or was it the tip of the iceberg of, you know, revival of civil society elsewhere in Eastern Europe? Okay, discuss. I mean, this would be a perfect essay question for Oxford students. Uh, uh, I will. Uh, uh, for the time being, perhaps in the discussion we return to it, the only aspect of that exception is, as I mentioned, uh, that I think is interesting is uh, reading an essay by Emil Cioran, the, the Franco-Romanian uh, author. He has uh, an essay where he compares Spain and, uh, and Poland. And, you know, rural, peripheral, very conservative, very Catholic. They even both worship the Black Virgin. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you have this parallel. And he puts his finger of what makes Poland unique. In those days, he thought Poland and Spain. I think Spain, uh, in the post-Franco era, has, uh, has, so to speak, no longer fits quite the uh, parallel that uh, Cioran uh, made. Uh, but I think that uh, this uh, idea of um, uh, the special place of religion and the Catholic Church, within the context of what I've been talking about, the Central European uh, 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 predicament, that is a unique Polish feature. You don't have that in Hungary. You don't have that in the Czech Republic. The Czechs are, this is the most secularized uh, society in Europe, not just in Central Europe, in Europe, period. Uh, as I said, the only country that would come anywhere near uh, is, is Croatia. Uh, uh, that's where the power may be. But that is unique, and that indeed uh, um, is related then to the, um, to the, um, uh, nationalist discourse uh, that has uh, been developing in the by, by the ruling party in Poland today, in the um, in the hypotheses about the the explanatory hypotheses, and I can only sketch them out because time is running out. One is is the most widespread, perhaps in the literature, for me the least convincing. Uh, uh, for Central Europe is about the winners and losers of the transition. And this is, uh, uh, and, and you have the same thing in the literature on populism, the winners and losers of uh, globalization. 
So then you lose, you translate it into the wind. Yes, of course, I, I can, I can uh, see uh, the, uh, um, uh, the attraction of that, uh, of that model. I can also see that uh, um, you have somebody like uh, Marcin Crowe, uh, who in his, uh, how to call it, a pamphlet uh, that he wrote, uh, Bewis McGoofy, uh, uh, and basically says, you know, what was the problem? Well, how basically political liberals jump on the bandwagon of economic liberals and simply became a smokescreen for <laughs> the introduction of Chicago-style market, uh, uh, market uh, uh, reforms. And, and so you have uh, capitalism introduced under the banner of Solidarność. Uh, and uh, all these dissident intellectuals, liberals, uh, infatuated by the guru, uh, Mr. Balcerovich, uh, who was a very doctrinaire, and still is actually, very doctrinaire uh, free marketeer. So uh, uh, that's, that's one take. There is an element of that. Basically, you could sum it up as the omission of the social question. You didn't want to think in those terms because you thought it would distract from the higher duty of etc., etc. Well. Uh, this comes back with a vengeance. Somebody else has caught wind of the social question, and they do it in their own way. You know, 50 zloty, 500 zloty, sorry, uh, uh, for uh, uh, children, allowances, etc. They, they know uh, how they call it the, 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 the better Poland. No? The, okay, this is, you, you get it. They, they are uh, uh, culturally very conservative, but uh, uh, socially, uh, let's say, compassionate, compassionate conservatism. That could be something they haven't, they haven't yet used, but they could. Uh, so, uh, so that's one thing. I don't find it terribly convincing, uh, because you look at the economic uh, performance of the countries. Uh, all of them, including Poland, the only country that didn't have the economic crisis. Again, if you don't want to talk about Poland, Czech Republic. I mean, incredible growth. Lowest unemployment in Europe. They are below 3%. They have to import, you know, construction workers from Ukraine, etc., etc. So this, they've never had it so good. The coffers are full. The debate, pre-election debate in Czech Republic, in the parliamentary debate in the fall, runs something like this. And I think we should increase the teachers by 10%. What? Only 10%? Oh, this is an outrage. 15% and immediately, etc. The next one, 20%, etc. Yeah. Uh, you can say anything because money is there. Uh, uh, um, nobody can object. Yeah, but you know we are in, we are a sort of uh, stringent situation. You know the kind of argument one hears in France, etc. Now this is it: a government that has performed remarkably well on an average of three and a half percent growth comes to the electorate and loses two thirds of its vote. So you cannot explain that in economic terms. So, so you have to go for something else. And I think that some of the other things I've mentioned are more, uh, uh, are more pertinent. Uh, yes, the, um, I suppose the, uh, uh, you could always point to the discrepancies between regions. And a lot has been made about the 
south, uh, east, and northwest. It, I, I know the discussion. I, uh, the, the only thing that I find interesting is that the electoral map of peace and platforma overlaps, I mean, especially the previous map, overlap with the maps of the partition of Poland. And then you look and you say, well, does it actually, uh, uh, does it help to, uh, is there a strong element uh, of socioeconomic, uh, could you connect that with the socioeconomic argument? This would be the backward Poland or something like that. Poland A, Poland B, you know, you know, you know, you know the argument. I, uh, a recent article by Irena Grossfeld and, and, and another colleague of hers uh, uh, shows the thesis is not convincing. That if you compare uh, incomes on both sides of that historical border, they've been narrowed down during the communist period and, and since. There are some differences, but this is not significant. No, what matters is religious practice, religious religiosity, which is stronger in that part of Poland for historical reasons. And that is, uh, that is more, uh, that is more uh, uh, interesting, uh, I think, than, uh, than, the, uh, than the other uh, argument. And uh, I, I would say that uh, if you look, therefore, at, at possible explanations, uh, the second hypothesis about nationalism as a, a prime challenge to uh, uh, liberalism uh, in terms of uh, uh, identity politics and uh, um, search for a legitimate uh, legitimation of power, that is a much more, much stronger argument. Incidentally, this is an argument we had very early on, and we dismissed it. Uh, I remember in uh, the beginning of 91, we were in Krakow at a conference, uh, Tim was present, etc. And uh, we uh, were not celebrating, but we were discussing the democratic transition since we're looking very promising. And uh, suddenly, amidst of this uh, very jolly and optimistic crowd, came one prophet of doom, and his name was Adam Michnik. And he said that Poland is facing the threat, or could be facing the threat, of three fundamentalism, three fundamentalist threat. The first was nationalist fundamentalism. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, uh, a homogeneous ethnic uh, um, hardline nationalist that, will, that could return to the surface. Uh, uh, he said, and I quote, the national interest so defined, yeah, this is everything should be subordinated to defense of national interest, and the national interest so defined sees discussion of anti-Semitism in Poland or discussions of pogroms against Roma as harmful to the Polish nation. Well, uh, perhaps he was onto something. Second, uh, second fundamentalism he was warning against, religious fundamentalism. And he says that is the tendency to obliterate the divide between the sacred and the profane, between moral norms and legal norms, etc., etc. Basically, warning against kind of Iranian scenario for Poland. Again, we said, what are you talking about? 
Uh, thirdly, uh, uh, he warned against uh, uh, um, the political culture of the Polish opposition. He said it's used to think in religion, in, in, in moral absolutes, them and us. Etc. And this is not a culture that is conducive to the political pluralism that you need for parliamentary democracy. And he was concluding by saying, well, all this means that we are to be facing a threat of populism. That is a term he used because he said, again, the language of rebellion against communism was the language of the people against them. Uh, it was already the populist thing was so to speak, embedded in that. So uh, at that time, we had dismissed it. We had long discussion. Uh, I remember Tim also uh, uh, um, gave us kind of rejoinder. I, also, I had, had discussion. We didn't think this was it. But I must give Adam credit uh, that you know prophets of doom eventually, <laughs> if you wait long enough, uh, uh, um, um, uh, end up being sometimes at least partially uh, partially right. The uh, yeah, I said nationalism. That is the second. Thing. The um, the third element, perhaps the most important in my opinion, is the uh, what could come under the heading of culture wars. I said for the social question, the first hypothesis. Marcin Krull's essay is, is a reference. For this one, uh, 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 Legutko's book, uh, 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 the, um, the Totalitarian Temptation, uh, by which he means liberal, is a guide. Where, uh, where does this uh, connect to the previous issue? Bibo, Istvan Bibo, the Hungarian writer, um, in his book about the misery of the small states of Eastern Europe, uh, made the following point. He was writing during the war. And he said there is a danger, and he was talking about the, all the countries of the region. And he said there is a danger for democracy and even a threat of fascism when the cause of freedom comes into conflict with the cause of the nation. Because in that case, then he develops, the cause of individual freedom will always lose. The tension in Eastern Europe between individual freedoms and the collective freedom. And because of the nature of nation state building in those countries, these are nations without state. These are cult cultural nations that whose existence is by no means insured, guaranteed. And therefore, uh, that is the crucial question around which uh, uh, the East European predicament uh, uh, prevails. And I think that the way the nationalists in Central Europe in the migrant crisis have succeeded in framing the problem in precisely those terms. Our nation our national independence, our national being, because we are cultural nations defined by language, culture, religious affiliation, etc., etc., is being threatened by the invasion which 
has to be stopped, like we did stop previous invasions, you know, the Turks, etc., etc. So there is this uh, discourse that has the framing of the migrant crisis come, came together with something broader, which we can call the uh, culture wars, and which Legutko then puts in a broader framework. Basically, he says what this liberal Europe stands for is uh, basically all the societal questions uh, ranging from um, abortion, gay marriage, uh, LGBT, etc. You have a whole range of those um, uh, ending up with multiculturalism. Uh, the foreign minister, the previous foreign, foreign minister, Vachikovsky, had, uh, had this uh, take about the, these godless uh, uh, cyclists uh, uh, and vegetarians who are threatening the uh, uh, family values in uh, Christian Poland, basically. Uh, so this is it. You have the framing of a liberal, uh, uh, weak, decadent Europe which is threatening the dissolution of the very core values that matter for us. And that is the fundamental difference uh, we have with Europe today. I heard that in Budapest, not once, not twice, all over the place. All the Orban establishment, they're all on that line. This is the most important issue for them. All the other issues that I mentioned are subordinated to that one. There is, a collect, there is a collective volume that I've seen of essays by Polish authors. There is actually a politi conservative political thinking, which is worth reading and, and, and reflecting upon. Uh, and you have a whole range of authors. This, I saw it in one collection published in Prague, which includes Krasnodetsky, uh, Cichotsky, Wildstein, Gavin. I mean, there's a whole range, a whole group of them. Uh, Legutko, I just mentioned because he is, has published his book now in English and, 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 and has, you know, this is a new totalitarian temptation, okay. Uh, but what, 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 if you have to look for common denominators about what could be called the blind spots of European liberalism, uh, first I would say memory, the memory war. The big mistake, Mazowiecki, the uh, 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 thick line, basically refusal to deal with the communist past in the name of modernizing the country and looking to the future. Secondly, identity. Uh, uh, they favor individual rights, proliferation. Liberal Europe favors proliferation of individual rights. They forget about uh, the collective identity of the nation. And thirdly, sovereignty. Uh, instead of the postmodern, uh, post-national Kantian delusions about perpetual peace, the end of history, and I don't know what, which is the uh, kind of uh, fig leaf for the European project, uh, nation state must remain the key subjects of domestic and foreign policy. This is a basic if you want, uh, mantra of the new conservative uh, thinking. And it comes at a time when the liberal post-89 cycle had been exhausted. So it's not just that these ideas are 
brand new and we never heard them before? No, of course. But they come in a package formulated at the very moment when the liberal cycle had been exhausted. You want a democracy? You have it. It's in crisis. You want a market economy? We have it. Since 2008, we know it is in difficulty, even though Eastern Europe has less so difficult, less difficult situation uh, than elsewhere. And you want it uh, return to Europe? Well, welcome. You are part of Europe, but Europe itself is in crisis. Which brings me to the last point, which is precisely Europe. And I, my God. Okay, I, I, will, I will just say it in telegraphic style and then we, we can develop that in the discussion. What I intended to say about uh, Europe is, first of all, to remind, I don't have to remind this audience, uh, but since Norman Davis is not here, so I can, I can do my uh, historical uh, 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 take on this. Uh, if you uh, read, uh, uh, I remember Jerzy Jedlicki, when he came to Paris in the early 90s, I invited him at the Fondation Saint-Simon. François Furet had invited him. And he opened his talk by saying, how many times have we already returned to Europe? <laughs> and then he developed the argument, you know. <laughs> yeah, we've been there before. And this is a very old debate. And the whole 19th century in Poland, of course, is uh, an intellectual debate about uh, uh, the merits and the uh, drawbacks or threats posed by uh, Western modernity. And his book, Jakiej Cywilizacji Potrzebuje Polska, Polacy, is about that. You reject a certain form of modernization because it comes together with, with uh, Germanization, with a Kulturkampf. <laughs> so uh, there is, uh, there is a uh, um, good to be reminded that this is a very old debate, very old debate. In the previous sessions, I think uh, 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 some have already alluded, uh, alluded to that. So uh, uh, that's one. Uh, on the European side, the whole literature about EU's transformative power uh, now reads very, very strange how to say it politely, well, uh, obsolete or slightly out of touch. Anyway, interesting, informative, but, you know, uh, yeah, it, the assumption that the EU leverage can transform. Well, it helped to transform Central Europe. Uh, it works until uh, you get in. It does, it's no guarantee of irreversibility. And uh, so that is very important, the whole literature about the idea that you have transition, consolidation, integration. That was the trajectory, right? And, that, and then what? Well. Then you have regression, <laughs> Rückschlag. So, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, second thing, the European response to uh, Central European uh, regression. Contrast between Hungary and Poland. Benign neglect to Hungary when Orbán came to power in 2010. But it'll meek letters from uh, Mrs. Nelly Cross from the Commission, you know, would you please perhaps amend something, you know, in your law on the media, etc., etc. Uh, meanwhile, Nelly Cross was running 12 
was on the board of 12 companies registered in the Panama Papers. <laughs> Not good. Uh, anyway, this, uh, this was the benign neglect enjoyed by Hungary, and you can contrast it with a rapid response to Poland. The laws were adopted in December, okay, December 15, January 16, uh, Timmermans, the commissioner, was already uh, asking explanations. After explanation, phase two is evaluation, and then eventually you come to measures taken, including the procedure that I already referred to about Article 7. How to explain the contrast? Well, you could simply say Hungary was thought to be an isolated case. Poland changes the picture. Size matters. So if Poland goes that way, uh, that is means it's a concern for the whole region, obviously. That's one explanation. The main explanation, however, is that Poland uh, um, had as ally and would-be protector in the EU the British Conservative, who are in Brexit mode, whereas Orban, very early on, opted for the PPE, the People's Party, CDU, CSU in particular. Uh, just one reminder, in 2000, in Austria, you have the Schüsselheide government. For the first time, an extreme right government comes into, uh, uh, extreme right party comes into government. Outrage, etc. Ostracism of Austria, if I dare say so. Uh, 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 yeah. For one year, they are, they, they are under scrutiny. There is a commission. The commission eventually says that democracy has not been undermined, etc. However, who was the first, when Austria was totally isolated, who was the first to give a press conference with Mr. Schussel, the Austrian prime minister? Viktor Orban. He was there. He was not a member of the European Union, but he was there immediately. Why? He understood immediately what this was about, that this may one day apply to him. And he forged this alliance with the Austrian right and then with the TSU. Around what? Around the Benesch decrees. Abrogation of the Benesch decrees of 1945 about the uh, properties of the Czech, of the, yeah, of the Germans from uh, Czechoslovakia. That this should be the abrogation of those decrees should be a precondition for Czech Republic and Slovakia joining the EU. This was officially endorsed. The head of the CSU at the time, Mr. Stoiber, went to the Fidesz conference in Budapest and Orban pledged to do just that. The alliance was then formed and it protected when Orban came to power and after 2010 started to doing some of the things I've been talking about, he had the wonderful protection shield which has lasted, which has been very effective and he never misses an opportunity when he gives an interview to remind everybody, I am vice president of the PPE. And if you look at the video from the Madrid conference of the PPE last year, he's the one who gets big applause, not Chancellor Merkel. So this is it. You want to understand why the leverage of the EU, well, it's a tricky thing. Why situation is desperate but not serious? Well, it's uh, because you have a number of things. Again, on the Intelegraphic Star, public opinion in Poland and in Hungary remains pro-European. You may wonder why. 
vote for anti-European government? I think because people understand that being remaining part of the EU, supporting the EU, not wanting any Brexit uh, uh, of any sort, is a kind of guarantee against <coughs> not going beyond certain limits. I think it's a safety valve. If you cannot control them from inside and from below, try to control them from above. I think that in Hungary, certainly, that is an argument uh, that I have heard. Uh, Third argument, uh, uh, geopolitics. I think a major limit on this illiberal drift is uh, geopolitical. Uh, you, again to quote Adam Michnik, you know his essay, The Choice of a Tradition, you know, from uh, 30 years ago, something like that. The Choice of a Tradition. So in Poland, there's Mowski, Pilsudski, the ethnically homogeneous Poland, the large, more cosmopolitan Poland, the two concepts of the nation. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, is related to who is the main enemy, Russia or Germany. Okay, so he's, and, and he explains why he chooses sort of the Pilsudski uh, uh, tradition. The pr the, that, that, in other words, the choice of a definition of a nation is related to a geopolitical choice as well, okay, in that Pilsudski-Dmowski variation. The problem with Kaczynski is that he has both. He takes a Dmowski version of definition of the nation, and he takes Pilsudski version of political power. He wants to be the Nachelnik. Uh, 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 instead of the dilemma, is Russia or Germany the main enemy, he says both. So, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 we, that is not, uh, that is not terribly uh, helpful, but uh, the geopolitical factor, uh, uh, Kaczynski or not, is there. And I think that will be a constraint on any drift of Central Europe further to kind of Eastern variations. They may share with Russia in the talk about decadent Europe, about, about how weak it is and how useless the liberals are, etc. At the end of the day, I think that geopolitical constraint there. Finally, Europe itself is being repoliticized in times of crisis. Europe is undergoing a crisis, uh, internal, Grexit, uh, north-south divide within the Eurozone, east-west divide on the issues we were talking about, an external threat, implosion of the neighborhoods, Ukraine and Putin, the Islamists in the south, now Trump overseas. This is an entirely new predicament for Europe. There is an interview by uh, of uh, the French president uh, in a literary journal, and I will conclude with that, where he, where he says uh, um, at the end of the interview, uh, I ask him, well, why do you remain? He, he paints a rather bleak picture. He says, how come you remain an optimist? He says, I remain an optimist because I feel the tragic dimension is returning to European politics the awareness of the tragic dimension. And he says, yes, we can no longer take for granted what we used to, being sort of uh, prosperous, democratic, under the American umbrella, etc., etc. That no longer holds. The landscape is changing. Either we understand that and we take that challenge, or we are gone. And so this is the moment 
we are. We are confronted with a choice. So it is, Adam, as Adam Miknik says, the Polish choice, choice of a tradition. It is a central European choice. Do you want to be part of the European core or do you want to be drifting closer to, uh, to Russia? But at the end of the day, it's also a European choice, as Macron has just put it. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Jack, for a terrific lecture. Comprehensive, incisive, amusing, looking at the whole wider context around Poland, exactly what we wanted. If I may pick up quickly on two things Jack said. Firstly, Leszek Kwiatkowski and his jokes. Leszek loved to tell the story of two young girls racing in the Jardin de Luxembourg. And one young girl was clearly winning, but the one who was far behind kept shouting, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning. And eventually the one in front collapsed in tears, and the one behind <laughs> won. And Orban and Kaczynski are the little girl behind, because in reality, their societies, what they've done in their countries is far behind, but they're shouting, I'm winning, I'm winning, and convincing others to collapse in tears. And of course, the only reason they can do that is, and this is a really important point you've made again and again, that the European Union is not merely tolerating them, it is supporting them. Uh, over 50% of public investment on Hungary and Poland comes from EU funds, feeders, 85% and so on. And so that I think is a really important point for us to take tomorrow. The other point I'd like to pick up is Choran, Spain, Poland. Because you could read that a different way. We're giving our explanations all out of culture. But the liberal gamble is that politics can change culture. And that authoritarian, conservative, Catholic culture that was there in Spain has been changed by politics, both domestic and regional. And so the question before us is, why has that been possible in Spain and not in Poland? I hope we can take that forward tomorrow. Meanwhile, I said at the beginning that Jack Rupnik is a doyen of Central East European Studies in France, and he thought that meant he was very old. But as you can see, he's incredibly young and vigorous, more than most of us, but also has a fantastic range of knowledge and indeed wisdom which we benefited from this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you.